Let's start with the beginning, Walthamstow School of Art. You studied art there. What prompted or inspired you to move into film? If I can give you a glib answer, an Italian journalist asked me several weeks ago, why is it, Mr. Greenaway, you started your career as a painter and now you are a filmmaker? And I very quickly said I was always disappointed that paintings didn't have soundtracks. <laughs> okay, I don't, I, I, you know, we all have definitions, don't we, of what cinema should yeah. be, what it ought to be, what it should have been, how it should have, uh, you know, organized its perspectives differently. Um, I don't know. I suppose there are many ways to define cinema, as there are people in this audience. But I do feel, you know, very disenchanted about the cinema we've now got. But I think, you know, there's no good moaning and complaining. We have to do something about it. Rather like Mr. Eisenstein did in 1931. And we're going to come on to Eisenstein um, a little later. Uh, I read one story that, that you were an avid fan of The Seventh Seal and watched it something like 10 times over the course of one week. That's right. I've even got my own 35mm copy of it, but I don't have a 35mm projector. <laughs> so holding it up actually becomes a very long film. It helps. <laughs> Just uh, stay with your relationship with, let's say, what we would call conventional cinema mainstream cinema, as you were studying art, was your desire to make films just, was it a reaction to that landscape? Well, when I went to art school, I had no idea at all that um, I would possibly end up as a filmmaker. Um, I, there was nothing particularly in my family background that suggested, indeed, that I should be interested in any sort of visual language. But I come from a family of people who have a great interest in natural history. My father was um, a very good um, but amateur ornithologist. My grandfather was a rose grower. My great-grandfather looked after deer in Epping Forest. Um, these people weren't, you know, by any means moneyed and didn't have, um, they didn't have uh, particular book knowledge, but they had a great sort of observational um, excitement about the natural world. And... Um, I picked it up by osmosis, hardly directly, and um, I was always rather concerned about the sort of ephemerality of the natural world, and I thought at the tender age of 13 or 14 that maybe if I were to become a draftsman or to become a painter, I could somehow fix this. I could sort of establish it and give it a sense of permanence, and I rather suspect now, I have to be careful because, you know, this is all intellectual hindsight here. Maybe I'm inventing too much. But there is a way that I think those are the beginnings of why, indeed, I wanted to be, um, why I wanted to be a painter, indeed. And what about the influence of literature? Because to watch the uh, early short films that you made is to see the influence of writers like Italo Calvino and Borges. But you've also said at the same time, if you want to write for film, become a novelist. Yes. Um, I always think, and this is probably a very unpopular thing to say, that all film writers should be shot. <laughs> we do not need a text-based cinema. You know, we need an image-based cinema. You know, it says in the Old Testament, in the beginning was the word. Sorry, that's wrong. In the beginning was the image. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think, you know, cinema understands this, um, I suppose, this quandary because it always, always, always goes back to the bookshop for its content. Mm. 
obvious example, you know, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, but everybody else from Almodovar to Godard to Eisenstein, we have created a cinema where a producer has to be satisfied with a text first before he will um, give you the money. I think that's, you know, rather unfortunate. It wasn't necessarily the ambition of all those uh, French and Belgian apologists in the 1910s and 1920s, people like Bazin, for example, who said the cinema was really no more than an unsatisfactory combination of the theater literature, and if you're very lucky, one or two paintings. Because there is a way, you know, I'm sure you would agree, or we can find an argument that's saying we have a text-based cinema. Mm -hmm. Every single film you've ever seen starts life with a text. And text has so many opportunities, you know, for 8,000 years we've had lyric poetry, for 400 years we've had the novel, theater hands its meaning down in text. Let's find a medium whose total sole responsibility is the world as seen as a form of visual intelligence. And surely, surely, surely the cinema should be that phenomenon. The BFI a couple of years ago um, released two volumes of your early work and you wrote an essay uh, inside and the opening of one of the essays you write there's a body of work from 1963 to 1980 that precedes the draftsman's contract my first true narrative feature film that gives evidence of a painter thinking he could possibly be a filmmaker now having watched these films over the course of the last month or so um, some of them again some of them f for the first time um, it's, it's, it's very interesting because I I don't look at it as an aspiring filmmaker or someone sort of on that journey. I see this the work of a bona fide filmmaker who is employing montage to a fantastic degree, experimental degree. But I, it's interesting that you see yourself still on that journey when looking at those films. Well, you're right. Um, I make very, very artificially very solidly made, self-consciously edited films. I think you can see that all the way through. Great concern about notions indeed of Eisenstein montage and the dynamic that exists between image following image following an image. And I sincerely believe that probably, certainly now in 2016, um, the king of cinema, the most uh, uh, potent manipulator is the editor. You might have said, what, 20, 30 years ago it was the cameraman. But basically, now an editor can do anything with a picture, with a digital revolution. You can transmogrify, you can metamorphize any image into any other image. And so the power of the editor, it seems to me, is extraordinarily strong and getting stronger. But in a way, in the digital age, you know, um, maybe the most powerful, powerful sort of manipulators, gatekeepers, are indeed editors of any sort. The uh, huge mass of material that's now available needs sorting out. It needs classifying. It needs collating. It needs to be put and shaped into some sort of uh, formula. So I think the disciplines of an editor, whether indeed he's playing with pictures or music or indeed text, is very, very important. Again, if I may dare to mention so early in this combination, uh, my great hero, Eisenstein. Eisenstein was a brilliant film editor, and I think it certainly shows. It's interesting you say about the amount of um, the wealth of material that's out there. Um, shortly before he died, Arthur C. Clarke said the one thing he didn't think about with the coming of the internet was that there would be too much information. It strikes me that with your cinema, um, you love the idea of perhaps too much because it allows you to go in any direction. 
Well, yes, and of course it is, or it can be, not only a backhanded compliment, but it can be a big criticism. Um, you know, too much, Mr. Greenaway, too much, cool down, you know, find mm. economy, uh, find uh, sort of other ways of operating. But, uh, you know, the capacity for the human imagination to embrace this huge amount of material, I think, is, um, is very, very valid and very legitimate, and very honorable and very creditable. Let's get out there and use this huge amount of material. I believe, sincerely, it makes for any sort of exciting art and certainly for exciting cinema. Let's go back to um, your early days. You, I think you had work experience at the BFI, which led to you working for the Orwellian Sending uh, Central Office of Information. That is true. The COI. The, uh, um, you the were... British Politburo. Yes. <laughs> Could you talk about your experiences on that and how that fed into the work that followed? Well, uh, you probably know the COI was sort of a continuation of um, the Crown Film Unit. It was... Uh, responsible, I suppose, to oppose Goebbels for British propaganda for activities, very sensibly, very creditably, for the Second World War. You know, it employed extraordinary people like uh, Auden and Benjamin Britten and really high-class uh, people not necessarily associated with cinema, but with all the arts. Um, but when the war was over, there was a problem here. How do you justify this propaganda arm? And about that sort of time, Macmillan was breaking up the... Uh, colonial empire of, uh, the, uh, of, of Great Britain and uh, supporting all the television stations of the world which were opening in Canada and Australia and uh, certainly, uh, well, all the other places you name them. So the COI became responsible for providing, I suppose, you know, basic information to fulfill the high demands of all this new sort of television, which meant that a huge amount of material was being generated, magazine programs, most of it shot on 16 mil, and most of it black and white, and most of it television structured. But for me, that was an extraordinary opportunity to cut huge amounts of material over and over and over and over again. And I did my duty as an assistant editor, sweeping the trims off the floor, and gradually, of course, was given more and more responsibilities and ultimately actually made films for the COI. But it was propaganda. It's propaganda, certainly. Okay, let's call it soft porn propaganda, if you like. <laughs> uh, we were in the business of, you know, advertising the Beatles and showing the world how brilliant uh, um, uh, Concord was, etc., etc. Um, and I'm pretty certain that I committed some really terrible sins in hindsight about proselytizing completely the wrong things. Not that I had those decisions to make, but I certainly followed them through. So it was a period of intense learning, 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 and uh, the ability indeed to make, should we say, good propaganda and bad propaganda. And let's face it, good propaganda makes good art. We might complain about Eisenstein being in the hands of Stalin to create notions of Soviet communism, but let's take Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. Isn't the Sistine Chapel an extraordinary piece of propaganda for Roman Catholicism? Fair enough. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll come back to, to things that you learned at, at the COI but we're going to go into the first clip now which is uh, an early scene from the Draftsman's Contract and what I love about the film watching it again is this blurring of the line between sort of documentary form and, and fiction can you talk about the genesis of this film when I was at art school we were taught that you should paint what you see and not paint what you know. 
That might sound rather recherche and elitist for a general audience, but it's an interesting notion which can be philosophically pushed in all sorts of different directions, and you've just seen that exemplified by that little speech. And that's obviously a conundrum that's been part, I suppose, of European cinema for at least 2,000 years, and it comes and goes, doesn't it? You know, the, the pendulum of painting every now and again becomes extremely theatrical, and then moves back again to realism and then swings back again. And I think, you know, that sort of confounding principle would be very interesting as regards notions of cinema. If you think about it, cinema really has been pursuing notions of realism for 120 years. What a waste of time. God has already made the world. Why are we trying to try and reproduce it? But that is the way, isn't it? But I mean, that could in general terms be described as what we've been doing with painting for at least maybe two or 3,000 years. All that extraordinary post-Renaissance painting, the desire to get it right, you know, to learn anatomy and perfect it, to understand the notions of portraiture and the glance, to be able to understand and perceive the world, to try and get a facsimile of what the world is like down as a representation. But, you know, it wasn't until probably what somebody like Monet, around about 1861, said to hell with all that. Let's, let's play with, with the notions of painting for its own sake. Um, after those experiments, of course, we entered the greatest century that painting has ever known, which, uh, of course, begins, I suppose, with, I don't know, Mondrian and Kandinsky, and we're off into abstract um, uh, expressionism, and to hell with the desire to make things real. And so the, the whole phenomenon, which was a huge, course, revolution, which a lot of people have great difficulty dealing with, is this notion of um, the disappearance of figuration. Now what we have to do is to get rid of narrative in cinema. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of this being your first narrative feature film, and throughout much, most of your, um, if not all of your narrative feature films, there is this sense of artificiality that we're made aware that we are constantly watching a film. Um, working with actors for the first time and working with actors since, how do you negotiate this artificial space with them as opposed to the desire to embody the person they're playing? Well, you know and you know and I know that actors are always the loose cannon. <laughs> very, very difficult to be able to control them completely in the way that you can organize a costume or indeed an animal, or indeed a field of grass. This is and, becoming uh, very Hitchcockian in the conversation. Uh, um, and I suppose, but then, you know, um, a feature film cinema, fictional cinema without actors, is very, very arid. Yeah. Just think of all the abstract films you've seen, and they're extremely boring, yes? True. So you've got to find some way of negotiating and making this all sort of work. I remember that... Um, um, the actor who played Mr. Nerville in the image you've just seen, he, after the film was presented, uh, he said, yes, very nice film, Mr. Greenaway, but where am I? So there was a way that maybe my cinema was not the ideal sort of uh, performance stage for actors. But on the other hand, apart, I think, from Alec Guinness, who refused to work with me, uh, that was because of my religious opinions, there was um, a way that no other actor has refused to come and work with me again. So there are certain sorts of opportunities and possibilities that people would find very advantageous to them, and certainly to the film, in my cinema-making practice. 
Because I remember, you know, there's a way that when I would um, create a composition and I want somebody's hand there and they dare to move it, you know, we stop and start again. You know, I want your hand there and it has to stay there, which, of course, can be, you know, very dictatorial, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm interested in making compositions. I'm interested in making extremely well-wrought, balanced picture-making. That doesn't mean to say it has to be classical. It can be you know, Dionysian, it doesn't always have to be Apollonian, but there is this great concern to get you, the audience, to look at the goddamn picture. Don't get de-hooked by getting involved in all these other sorts of activities, one of which is performance. <laughs> and is the other camera movement? Well, a lot of these uh, movies, you know, we hardly ever move the camera. It's going back to that Italian again, you know, this is, uh, this is paintings with soundtracks. And on the whole, paintings don't move. <laughs> Dare I even bring up the idea of, of narrative? But it strikes me that this film is very much a deconstruction of the genre. It's, it's essentially a murder mystery. Um, in perhaps the same way that your previous um, film, The Falls, is a disaster movie, and that's, that is pushing the definition of disaster movie quite far. Um, I'm just curious about what, your desire to react against the precepts of genre and a reaction against mainstream cinema to, to sort of rebel. That is true. I think that maybe ought to bring us on to this notion again. The COI, after all, you know, was meant to be a documentary uh, unit, and in the documentary, you're supposed to tell the truth. I mean, what on earth is the truth? You know, if you take history, for example, there's no such thing as history. There's only historians. History is unvisitable. You cannot go back and check anything out. And since, um, you know, we don't even use visual information for history so very often, we base our examination of history on text. And we all know from Julius Caesar to Winston Churchill that all historians are liars. You know, the idea, you know, the famous, I suppose, most famous English history is Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, great classic, beautifully written. But really, it's not really about the Roman Empire. It's really about the English Empire. And Gibbon was deliberately using the uses of history to say something to his fellow travelers at the particular time he was writing. And I think this sort of vested interest, nobody, nobody writes history, if you like, totally, uh, in a sense, objectively. The idea is not to do that. And I think, you know, we always, again, let's mention uh, uh, Julius Caesar and mention uh, Winston Churchill again. They're very good writers. They aren't necessarily good historians, which leads us, I don't know who said it, but essentially, you know, history is only a branch of literature. Write this, write this large, what are the differences, in a sense, between documentary and feature film? And I think ever since those times, what I'm talking now about were early 1980s, we've seen this increase and increase and increase. I think it's very important that we should break the barriers down between these rather um, sort of neat journalistic sort of appreciations and not worry about these definitions anymore. I've always really objected, you know, the word documentary implies a document, but we're making something which is not supposed to be about text. So all the contradictions. But again, you know, all the best people are interested in contradictions, aren't they? That's what makes the world go around. So let's exploit those. 
about two years before we made the Drossom's contract, we made two films. One was called Act of God, which was about people who'd been struck by lightning and survived. And the other was called The Falls, which you've mentioned, which was a rambling history about, I suppose, the metamorphosis of people into birds. Now, they were obviously supposedly regarded that horrible word as mockumentaries. Don't like that word. Uh, but you can understand what's meaning. But the strange thing was, although I was scrupulous about recording uh, the people who'd been really struck by lightning and survived, and as far as I could ever make it, I mean, as truthful as possible, and nobody believed it. But The Falls, which was completely and absolutely a theatrical fiction, people were far more prepared to believe that. So the notion is, I suppose, you know, you believe what you want to believe, despite the evidence. And this is, I suppose, an attitude that's followed through in a lot of my filmmaking. Drossman's contract really is a sort of documentary about 1694, about the Married Woman's Property Act, about the way people wore costumes, about the antagonisms of Protestants against Catholics. It's always a history lesson again. And it's also highly, highly color-coded, so it really is rather like a, you know, a Whistler painting, you know, um, a nocturne in blue, green and yellow, whatever else. There are three colors there. It's basically green, white, and black. These formal concerns, which continually always excited me, are as much important for me in the manufacture of this movie as anything you might presuppose about notions of revenge tragedy or ideas of the thriller. And also, of course, in total, it's the story about a frame-up. And the frame is absolutely essential heretofore in the history of the cinema we've made so far. We're going to move on um, two films to uh, a film that you made in 1987, The Belly of an Architect. This was the second film of yours that I saw. The first I saw in the cinema um, is a, an art house cinema in Wales. And uh, there was a couple in front of me. And the guy was goading his girlfriend into going to see it. And his argument was... No, no, you'll love it. It's got the guy who plays the sheriff in the first Rambo film in it. <laughs> she's she's going to be surprised. Um. No, it is strange. We made the film in Rome, and um, Brian Dennehy was constantly harassed by people who wanted his signature. Yeah. I don't know why, but watching it recently... Of, of the body of work that you produced, as you directed uh, in, in the 1980s, this struck me as the most intimate and personal film that you made. Am I wrong in that? Or? No, but I don't want to, you know, overload you with private indulgences. This is a portrait of my father, and there is a way in which there are many, many resonances which were relative to his life and represented by, indeed, the character that was um, played by Brian Dennehy. <laughs> So it was a very, very personalised film, yes. I think the audience have to understand the guy's dying of stomach cancer. Yes. And this is a doctor who is playing analogies and allegories in association with the famous Roman emperors. The other thing that struck me watching it again um, is the way that you look at the role of the architect and perhaps the most important or relevant artist in our everyday life. Would you agree? Or? The major one, you know, architecture is meant to be the first of all the arts, which shelters everything else. You're absolutely right, yes. Yep. And just in terms of um, getting this film made, and prior to this, you made a Z and two noughts, following it, you made Drowning by Numbers. <coughs> Was it easy to write? Because watching these films, they are a singular vision. And there are other filmmakers I've seen that, as I watch the films unfold, I think there's a lot of compromises here. But 
these films feel so uncompromising as a result of the success of the draftsman's contract was it easy to get these films made no um you know the first film in a curious way it's easy to make the first film because nothing's gone before and nothing you can't judge anything by anything but i mean the films that um, follow that first success become more and more difficult because they expect you, audiences expect you to make Son of Draftsman's Contract and, you know, uh, Belly of an Architect Part 2. And I, I didn't want to do that at all. Um, I wanted to, you know, have certain pursuits, and I think the vocabulary is getting laid down in these first three films, but it needed to be tacked. I needed to tack in different directions. I wasn't going to go on making the same film over and over again. And I think, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously important to be able, not only for myself, but for audiences to show there's development going on here. And I know this is the, a subject we probably don't have enough time to, to go into in any great depth, but the concept of numeracy in your films, um, we've got the 12 drawings in Draftsman's Contract, the eight stages of Darwinian evolution in <coughs> Z and Two Noughts, not to mention um, the play with numbers in, in Drowning Bar Numbers. Well, again, I think perhaps we've already touched on this. I am very, very doubtful about narrative in cinema because I don't think if I were to ask any member of the audience here, tell me the story of the sinking of Titanic, tell me the story of Casablanca, okay, you would probably give me something in two or three seconds, maybe a few more seconds if you were particularly fascinated by these films, but you would soon dry up because in a curious way, the story is not important. What we remember and what we are engaged in a particular cinematic experience is some amazing connection between happenstance, performance, maybe color coding, a piece of music, a particular thing that only cinema can reproduce. And that doesn't hang, I don't believe, that doesn't hang at all upon any desires for storytelling. Sequence, yes. Um, you know, notions again of, of editing ideas about space and time. But narrativity, no. So I wonder why we all spend so much time and effort in creating a writer's cinema when we have no business doing it. And I sincerely believe if we got rid of that notion of being slaved to the bookshop, which we are, we really, I believe, have to cut that umbilical cord and allow a cinema to run free away from the enslavement of narrative. Now, I know that's very difficult for a lot of people to understand because an awful lot of people deliberately go to the cinema to be told a story. But I believe cinema is far more valuable than simply to be a vehicle for storytellers. Let's jump forward to the late 1980s and for a film that for many people defined uh, Britain in the 1980s, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. You mentioned earlier about the role of editors today and saying in the past it was cinematographers. This is such a stunning example of your collaboration with Sasha Vierney, who you began working with on Z and Two Noughts and all the way through to Eight and a Half Women. Yep. Could you talk about your collaboration, the process, and particularly in terms of this film? Well, Sasha Vierney, a Russian by origin, living most of his life in Paris, had worked with um, a mainly um, great cinematic hero of mine, who would be Alain René, who made last year in Marion Bad, which I think is the greatest European movie ever made. And uh, he'd also worked with uh, Bunuel and lots of other, you know, sort of post-Nouvelle uh, Vague um, uh, filmmakers like Rob Griet and Marguerite Duras and so on. 
so extremely well seasoned. I think he was an assistant way back before, indeed, the Second World War and had worked on Testament d'Orfe by Cocteau. So his, um, you know, his roots in cinematic, French cinematic history were very, very profound. Extremely wise man. Um, sometimes a little difficult to get on with. Uh, still a communist. Uh, he was always the one that cried havoc when people weren't being paid properly. Good for him. Um, and indeed we did. We did work um, uh, on about, well, probably about 10 or 12 uh, films, not necessarily always feature films. Uh, he had a thousand tricks, all sorts of tricks which most people had forgotten. You know, how to outline with white chalk the edges of all staircases so you could see them very clearly under conditions of low light. Great ideas about, you know, how to distinguish vermilion from crimson with a light. Very, very quick on very, very small resources. We made a film called The Baby of Macon, and we took over a huge cathedral in Amsterdam, and he lit it with about four candles, and it worked extraordinary. In fact, he said, whilst you're lighting it, you can read the newspaper, but only take page four, because I'm going to need page two as a reflector for the candles. <laughs> so you could see also his wryness as well, but he followed it up. You know, he really did deliver with um, you know, all his ideas and his theories. Unfortunately, he died about uh, 10 years ago, but he, um, he um, uh, educated, if you like, both me, <coughs> myself, and also a brilliant uh, Dutch cameraman who we've been working together now for about, I suppose, well, ever since he died, a man called uh, Renier van Brummelen. I think that Sacha Vierney would have had a lot of problems with the digital revolution. He was a really dyed-in-the-wool sort of studio-studio um, uh, cameraman. But we did do crazy things. Like, we took artificial lights out into the real landscape and tried to compete with God's sun. You know, crazy, crazy ideas. Produced um, some rather fascinating ideas. You mentioned the film Z and Two Noughts. We actually drew up a list. 26, because it's all based on the alphabet, 26 different ways to light a set. Now, that sounds rather dryly sort of academic, but it was good. And we fulfilled, you know, we lit by dawn, by midnight, by candles, by cathode tubes. And I think we even lit by rainbows. Uh, we didn't, we didn't manage to light by starlight. That's a bit difficult. Probably you can do it now, but you couldn't do it back in the early 1980s. So he obviously had an academic turn of mind, and he was interested in language for its own sake. So I do believe we got on very well. And like, looking at this film, did you, did you talk a great deal about the actual coding of... Yes, of course, I have to bring in the art department here yes. as well. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the whole film is based on seven colours. Um, the kitchen is green because that's the jungle where all the food came from. The uh, restaurant is red because it represents uh, meat-eating and, and cannibalism and so on and so on. And we, we tread it all the way through. And just to make people very, very self-conscious that we were playing with colors here, Helen Mirren, when she walked through a door, she changed color like a chameleon with the circumstances and the scenario. So that was, uh, that was a sort of really interesting idea to pursue and fun to pursue. Let's um, move on to, and in many ways, an even wilder a more daring experiment. I remember in 1990 watching on Channel 4 a TV Dante and, and being surprised and confronted uh, by what I thought was an absolutely remarkable piece of television. The following year, I think there was just a segment of Prospero's books screened at Cannes 
and a lot of critics came away saying it was by far the best film that screened at Cannes that year. It's wonderful the way that John Gilgood threw himself into this. Um, and my assumption was this was a project initiated by you, but he had much more involvement in that, if I'm not mistaken. Gilgood always reckoned that Shakespeare had written The Tempest for him. I mean, it's an incredibly wordy part and full of the most extraordinarily beautiful language. And, you know, we can say this, can't we, in the year 2016 when everybody's celebrating, indeed, uh, celebrating, can you celebrate, memorializing the death of Shakespeare. But um, would you not agree that most films about Shakespeare are normally done by actors who see a huge opportunity to put their performance on everlasting screen? You know, theatrical performances come and go and only exist in the memory. And, you know, you can think of a whole host of people, Laurence Olivier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who did that. And I think that um, Gilgood always, always, always wanted to make a film of, uh, indeed, Shakespeare's last play, The Tempest. And he was completely over the moon that we could find an opportunity to make it. And we did it in a particular way um, in so far as... Um, Gilgood himself played all the parts. He voiced everybody. He even voiced Miranda, his daughter. And um, that was, in a sense, you know, there used to be a theory that, uh, well, maybe it still exists in some people's minds, that um, The Tempest is Shakespeare's farewell to the theatre. So it was a summation of everything, I think, that uh, Gilgood thought he'd done. So when you ask that question, because he wanted to do it so much, he gave everything. And... In terms of, I just wonder, looking at the chronology of your films, you have this, then it's followed by The Baby of Macon, then we moved to The Pillow Book. And it struck me, watching these films in order again recently, um, of this desire to move away, to do something new. And then you look throughout the 1990s that you have your immense project, The Stairs, uh, you work more in galleries, and it's almost a broadening of not necessarily your horizons, but the physical horizons of what you were actually physically doing? Well, I became very disenchanted by cinema, and you can see intimations of how I feel about cinema now. I just didn't feel it was really satisfactorily um, understanding and developing its premises of the 1920s as a, as a meta medium for extraordinary inroads and excitements, not in prose, but in poetry. And um, I don't know, I always felt very, um, I suppose, frustrated that I couldn't push it forward. And so the notion of cinema became part of a bigger world, and you're absolutely right. I began to explore all the other sort of, uh, I made a couple of operas, I had a lot of painting shows, and we had a huge project about um, the vocabulary of cinema, which we made in big city exhibitions. And one was in Geneva, one was in Trieste, one was in Munich. Really big sort of state products with costing a huge amount of money to make an examination, if you like, about the vocabulary of cinema from the outside. But these things, of course, could only be seen by limited audiences, and they were very much um, in situ. You had to be there. I got very excited about the notion of, um, what's the Latin phrase? Um, um, it means, um, what does it mean? It means, you know, the sense of place. Um, uh, and I became very frustrated about places like this, you know, the falsity of the cinematic imagination and so on. Uh, I suppose that's why I started making operas, and we 
We had, you know, operas in Verona in the bars of Caracalla. So it was an attempt, I suppose, to, shall we say, use the reality of the world rather than its fictional representation in cinema. However, we made this huge project called Hotel Sloopa Suitcases, really massive project, cost an awful lot of money. It was an enormous success in film festivals of the world. I think it went to over 300 film festivals, but it was an absolute failure in a cinema. And I think that was because we could see what was going to happen with the digital revolution. And I was somehow hoping, ridiculously, to embrace what we all take for granted now, so that there's a way that you, the audience, could intervene. You could stop, and you could start, and you could select. And if you were only interested in the color red, you could only just select the red shots. If you were only interested in the chase, you could just chase. If you didn't like to see people kissing, you could get rid of them. So there was a way, it was really massive, interactive cinema, but the technology didn't exist, audiences weren't ready, and the total film in a public sense never made it. But Tulsluper is, is a fascinating character across the whole of your career. If you go back to the short films, A Walk Through H, Vertical Features remake, um, it appears in the falls, and then we have the three features made a decade ago. What, are you, what is it about this, this, this character it's, it seems too easy to just say it's the cinematic alter ego of Peter Green. Well, you have to say it, though. I, mean, I just said is, it. <laughs> I said it again. <laughs> that was, you know, obviously, but with a fictionalization of myself, I could travel to areas where I could never do it in real life. Yeah. You know, I had all sorts of exciting sexual adventures which had not been inside my experience, and all sorts of other, you know, activities of impossibility. So it was an extension, if you like, uh, of what I thought, you know, the cinema maker, and I suppose being very... Um, exhibitionist and very, um, I suppose, leger majesty is where I posited myself. And maybe it's no, it's no accident that ever afterwards I've attempted, you know, with films about Vermeer, uh, films about Goltzius, films about Rembrandt, and now films about Eisenstein, to posit who this magnificent creature should be. Heaven forbid that it should even remotely be called Greenaway. But it was an example of searching for the real sort of mega possibilities of what the seventh art could have been. Let's, let's actually move on to Rembrandt and your 2007 film, Night Watching. My first viewing of this, my first reaction was, it was some kind of riposte to Amadeus, where you, you have this genius who's a child, but that was full of affectation. What I find fascinating about this, and in a way, it, it, it goes back to my fascination with Belly of an Architect, the... You can hold the artist up high, but they are a human being. And rather than have high art, low art, you bring the levels down and move them up until you're just portraying a life. You're right. And I think, again, um, since you're going to talk about Eisenstein before long... We are. It's, um, it's, it's the same situation again. Um, I live in Amsterdam, and they're very pragmatic people, the Dutch. And um, I did a big series, and we're still working on it, called Nine Classic Paintings Revisited. And the Rice Museum in Amsterdam allowed me to project on this painting. Now, this painting is uninsurable. Uh, just after the Second World War, the Marshall Plan bailed Holland out of its terrible economic disasters after the Nazis had destroyed the, the country. 
and um, the Dutch were getting way behind in their interest payments, but the incumbent American president said, okay, okay, Holland, we will forgive you. You don't have to pay any more money for what you owe us if you give us Rembrandt's The Night Watch. <laughs> and they said, no way, absolutely <laughs> no way. It's a very important painting because it's all about uh, you know, the fight, the sort of um, David and Goliath against you know, the powerful... Uh, forces, indeed, of uh, Germany during the Second World War. But, I mean, there is a way that also the Dutch regard Rembrandt as the car mechanic up the road. You know, he's very good. His wife's extremely good with money and looks after him very well. And uh, he knows, you know, how to organize his canvas, etc. But he's like us, you know. He shits in the toilet and, you know, he has to sleep eight hours at night. So it's a very pragmatic thing. And uh, we've tried to do, always to have that sense of mortality, mortality, mortality. So these great ambitions, you know, to expand and create meta-cinema, I know they're doomed to fail. It's like, you know, we're all making, you know, massive attempts to organize the world, but, you know, it's, 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 it's hubris, isn't it? You know, we are pushing, we're fighting the gods to do the impossible. It's important, we should do it though. We have to keep doing it, we have to keep doing it, but we know we're going to fail. And in a curious way, all these great geniuses are part and parcel of that same phenomenon, as indeed was Mr. Eisenstein. And you keep doing it because thousands will be turning out in the UK this weekend to see Eisenstein in Guanajuato, your new film, which we're going to come on to. Um, between uh, Night Watching and, and the new film, uh, you made Gotis and the Pelican Company, which is a continuation of the Dutch Masters project. And I strongly recommend that people see that. It's a beautiful film. But let's move on to Eisenstein. Perhaps start with a clip, and then we can talk about the new film. You said earlier on, and I really uh, uh, applaud you for saying it, is that when you watch a Greenaway film, you know you're only watching a film. And all the devices that are going on here, which are ridiculously you know, non-realistic, is an indication, again, of that vocabulary. A vocabulary which I believe Eisenstein himself showed the way, and it's certainly, for me, uh, very self-conscious, very artificial, but then, don't you agree, cinema is about the most artificial medium you can ever think of. But something that comes out of watching this film, and I see it in so much of your work, is a passion to share your passion and your knowledge. It's, it, it's perhaps glib to say to educate people, but there is this sense that this is a great person, this is a great artist, please go and watch his work. These great painters, go and see these paintings. They, they, there's something beautiful about a passion, sort of just glowing, in a way, off the screen. Well, it is true. Um, I don't say and talk about missionary positions, do I, which is a bit of a problem. But there is a, you know, these, these are extraordinary people who have, you know, touched the top of the possibilities of our civilization. And um, they should be, I sincerely believe, looked at and learned from and revered. You know, I, I hold the, the uh, rather strange, maybe, position that I think the most important people in civilization of the world are painters. That uh, might be rather strange for a lot of people who might think painting is a rather elitist private occupation. But painters create the man-made world. Let me tell you an anecdote. Giacometti, Italian-Swiss, said, 
and I don't wish to malign your grandmother, but your grandmother probably knows nothing about Picasso, but be absolutely certain that Picasso knows everything about your grandmother. <laughs> the way that the trickle-down effect happens with the particular imaginations of people who visualize ideas in the world for the last 8,000 years, let's make it more convenient and go back to the Renaissance, is profound. And when we're talking about our grandmothers, you know, your grandmother's probably got curtains in her kitchen, which has got a design on it, which is influenced by, I don't know, Joe Bloggs, and Joe Bloggs has looked at Utrillo, and Utrillo has looked at Picasso. So you can see how Picasso has influenced, in a curious way, your grandmother. I mean, everything absolutely in this room is designed, and the origin of all this design is painters. So painters have made the man-made world, and I think that's extraordinary, and I think painters ought to be highly applauded. There's a painter in the audience. <laughs> um, I don't want to come back to narrative, but I do want to talk about drama. And we can look at a Rothko painting, which has no narrative, but it has drama. It's interesting with the scenarios that were presented with in your films. And in, in this case, scenario is probably the wrong word, the situations with your characters. In this case, Eisenstein in Mexico, that they are to some degree in a moment of crisis. And with particular reference to this film, I'm curious about Eisenstein and Mexico. What interested you that moment in his life? Well, um, without wishing to be, you know, pompous in any way, the film is, of course, about um, eros and thanatos, sex and death. I really bore people to death by going on and on about this, but let me do it one more time. Uh, everybody in the audience, your most important moments in your life is your very beginning and your very ending. Now, I don't really know very much about, I know about one or two people in the audience, but most of you I know nothing at all. But there are two factors. Two people fuck to make you, and I'm very sorry you're going to die. Uh, everything else about your life is really very, very ephemeral, isn't it? And isn't that why all art is really about Eros and Thanatos? The very beginning, which is unknowable, and the very ending is also unknowable. So it's no surprise that all culture, all religion, all painting, all cinema is really about, basically about these things. And I think all my movies really have been about that. You know, you saw this uh, clip, for example, of Belly of an Architect is another way of explaining it. The subjects are infinite, and one could talk about them endlessly, endlessly, and they really are incredibly fascinating. Whether you're a serial killer or a nun, you are interested in sex. And we all know the immortality and the mortality principle, which is maybe why people make art in the first place. So with subject matters like that, there's no end to the permutations and the permutations and the permutations. And again, you know, there's a way that Eisenstein is about the self-same thing. He, of anybody, probably understood. He, even as a small boy, I think German doctors suggested he had a heart that wasn't going to last very long. He did die. I think he died aged about 50. Uh, so he didn't die he didn't live very, very long. Um, and he was always very much aware of his mortality. And I think on the other side, you know, he's very questionable about his own sexuality. He never really sort of um, could understand how he could operate emotionally and sexually. And indeed, uh, as is exemplified in this film, he falls in love with um, a young man, his uh, guide, 
uh, Guanajuato. Uh, the film has a subtitle. You probably know the film October, the f big uh, third feature film he made, was sometimes called um, Ten Days That Shook the World. So the subtitle of our film is Ten Days That Shook Eisenstein. I think Sex and Death is a good moment to open up to the audience and see if they have any questions. So we have some roving mics. Um, um, I, I, I don't know how to phrase this, but in, in Freud you've got the superego, the ego and the id, uh, Gaston Bachelard, Poetics of Space, you've got the attic, the place of dreams, and the ground floor, where, which is reality, where you might go out and get a package from the postman and connect with the real world in the basement, which is kind of very dark and primitive and cavemanish. And I've always thought the Tempest was like um, Ariel is the is uh, the place of dreams, if you like, and uh, Prospero is very realistic and practical and active. And Caliban, of course, is the the caveman unconscious. And uh, I just wondered if if well, I'd I'd like to know how you perhaps expressed this in Prospero's books? Yes. How long have we got? <laughs> there, there, I mean, what is so amazing about Shakespeare that he fits any age, doesn't he? The whole, you know, the sort of anti-colonialism association that became a part and parcel of our understanding of Caliban. Um, the actual suggestion, again, I think I've mentioned it already, about this being Shakespeare's last play, and it's all about reconciliation. And it's about the reconciliation, indeed, of these Freudian items that you have, have um, associated with your question. Um, we, uh, Eisenstein was fascinated by Freud, I think mainly because Eisenstein was devoted to Leonardo da Vinci, and you probably know that Freud wrote a paper on Leonardo da Vinci about a blackbird flapping its tail in uh, Leonardo da Vinci's wife, which doesn't have to be pursued too far to understand all sorts of homosexual associations. So he made that identification. But in the film, he actually suggests that Freud was very wise by suggesting that all of us need five phenomena in order to make us complete and happy. Let me see if I can remember them. First of all, we need our health. Without health, everything becomes null and void. Second, we need work. We are programmed to work. A man or a woman who does not work leaves an empty, uh, fragile, sort of frigid sort of life. The third thing is, okay, although an awful lot of stupid people have got money and we need a little sustenance to keep us going, we don't need a lot of money, but we need some money. Now, maybe this is a particularly masculine thing, but item number four is we need sex. We are incredibly programmed for all sorts of sexual imperatives. And then lastly, if we're very lucky, we have love. Let's go through them again. Health, work, money, sex, love. And if you've got all those things, and they're all manipulating and working their way through all the super-egos and the ids and the egos that you're talking about, then surely we are profoundly happy. Unfortunately, Freud, uh, that uh, Eisenstein wanted to meet Freud, but it didn't happen. He did meet his daughter, but he never met the man himself. I don't know whether that remotely offers you any sorts of answer. <laughs> but, it, but it's an implication again, you know, that, um, uh, you know, polyglot, polymath Eisenstein was certainly aware of all the theories going around. You know, and he's, you know, he's, uh, I suppose, you know, the big Californian concern for Freudian psychoanalysis is around about this time. 
the same time as indeed of the invention of sound cinema. And isn't it always interesting how Freud and cinema have gone along together? Uh, cinema was invented by the Lumiere brothers, so-called, three days before Christmas in uh, 1895. Six days before Christmas, Freud wrote his first paper on female hysteria. Is there a connection? I bet you there's a connection there. I'll leave it to you to work out. Or the next Peter Greenaway film. Someone here, yes. Hello. The question is, what particular influence you from the Eisenstein's uh, movies? Because you mentioned him uh, so many times. And let me make a little introduction to the question. Because I am emotionally involved in Russian cinema because my father was assistant of Eisenstein when he was a young boy. And finally, he came, came, came back to Poland uh, with the Second World War. But um, I studied film academy, and particularly I was focused on the constructivist artist. And watching your film during period I was studying in Poland was communistic uh, time, communistic world. And you was, how to say, not very popular uh, director um, and you know, presented to the public, but you was presented for the film students that we, all of us, we were watching your film really with love and fascination for you, me as well. But thinking about you, first time I, uh, I've heard that you are particu particularly connected with Eisenstein, Eisenstein because for me, you was always with your philosophy, with your narration, with uh, erotic uh, world in your movies. You was like Sergei Parajanov. That was my, uh, my um, impression. Well, first of all, I have to ask you, you have seen the film Eisenstein in Guanajuato. All of them. All of, all of them. <laughs> oh, I thank you. Um, I have absolutely no doubt that cinema hasn't been going very long, 120 years, which is really infancy, compared to, shall we say, 8,000 years of European Western painting. But I do believe that cinema has thrown up very, very few super visionary luminaries, very, very few. You can count them on, on the fingers of two hands. There have been hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of filmmakers, but the art is very, very imperfect, very embryonic, very, very beginning, and the number of cinematic geniuses, shall we say, are very, very small. At top of that list, I've always, always thought, ever since the tender age of 17, that Eisenstein was number one. He makes a very serious cinema, which certainly in 1927, 1928, 1929, was not seen anywhere else in the world. A really serious cinema. Okay, he was a vehicle for propaganda for Stalin, but we've already argued that great uh, propaganda is great art. Great art is great propaganda. Consider Michelangelo. So I don't really have a problem with that. So I think, first of all, the notion of seriousness. Here is a serious filmmaker, and there are really very, very few serious filmmakers, I believe. Second, I think there is an enormous sense of incredible cinematic intelligence and poetry about his association. 
I think it's related, of course, to montage theory, and you must know, as a student of Eisenstein, montage theory is very complicated. Eisenstein breaks it down into nine particular sections and, and argues it endlessly. I mean, he shared the space with Podovkin and Bertov and Dojenko as well, but Eisenstein is the prime pusher and reason. So I have no doubts about putting this man on a very high pedestal, and I think he is an extraordinary, um, I suppose, proposition to take note of. And, uh, of course, I suppose in the 1920s, he followed a narrative line. Stalin probably insisted that he did that. But over and above everything else, he is, I sincerely believe, the greatest cinema poet we've ever seen. Now, I know with your country, I gathered an enormous amount of favor, as we suggested before, with the cook, the thief, his wife, and a lover, because it was like uh, the capitalist fox getting into the communist hen house. And uh, since uh, Russia, you know, reads between the lines and it's very sophisticated politically about notions of pravda and the truth, the film was incredibly popular in Russia at fan clubs in Siberia. It went on for some time. But now that I have made a film about Eisenstein, who suggests that indeed he was in Putin's homophobic Russia, a homosexual, I have suggestions that uh, I'm an outsider and I have no business making uh, pictures, making films about a Russian national hero. And also, uh, heaven forbid, I'm not even making a film about Eisenstein in Russia, but I'm making a film about Eisenstein in Mexico. Good reasons for all this. But I think, you know, that um, next year is 1917. We're all going to be memorializing the Russian Revolution. Uh, and I sincerely believe that, you know, the people, just like um, you have beautifully said on my behalf, and I, I thank you for that, there is a missionary position here used in its rightful word, the way that phrase, um, which is indeed to introduce people, to say, look at this, look at this. Aren't these, don't these represent the high points of what we as human beings are capable of, or possible of? So please don't run away with the idea that I'm remotely detrimental about notions of Eisenstein. But I think the way we've made the film is to show how human he is, very vulnerable, very much related to our physical, if you like, you know, he shits, he pees, he f***s off, he, he um, uh, is petulant, he's misogynist, he behaves badly, he's often, uh, I suppose, you know, um, a betrayer of certain sorts of uh, important sensitivities. But again, I mean, let me make really, really a powerful but dangerous comparison. Christianity had to make Christ mortal in order to make him a god. Happy with that answer? <laughs> we have another question. While we're passing the mic over to our gentleman, um, something about this film. that uh, A couple of years ago, uh, the French writer Laurent Binet wrote the kind of novel biography, HHHH, um, which is about an actual event taking place in the Second World War. And some people were outraged by the fact that on one page he's recreating what happened with these two incredibly brave people. The next page he's talking about his current girlfriend. And then he, he talks about one of the characters, one of the real people in the Second World War, waking up in the morning, going down to get their, their grey coat and putting it on. He said, well, well, hold on a minute. How do I know they got it? How do I know it was raining outside? How do I know they went down to get their grey coat? There is this thing, and again it comes back to this idea of naturalism, 
we can represent reality. The, the pleasure of watching this film is that it sort of does away with that straight away and just tells us we can't know exactly what they said at that moment in time. Sure. It, yeah. There's a pleasure in it, and yet it feels oddly that I got more from that than I would reading a biography of Eisenstein. Well, it's only 120 minutes long. That's true. And, uh, you know, it's only 10 days, short part of his life. But um, there is a way that, you know, we've known, haven't we, even after a miserable 120 years, that cinema is capable of doing this. Unfortunately, we see it so rarely. And it must be encouraged, and I think, you know, that's... Um, you know, you are encapsulating all our hopes and ambitions for a cinema we ought to be having. Yes. Uh, yeah, many years ago, um, we had a few beers in a pub around the back of Channel 4 when it was on Charlotte Street. And forgive me if I got this wrong, because we may have had too many beers. But um, you told me that um, uh, the, the original cut of the Drasen's contract was five hours long, I think. Um, so the question was, A, was it? And B, what really roughly was the, were the extra, extra sort of three hours? Well, you know, you might know that cinema is an industry and it's based upon you audience sitting there and then moving out for the next performance, etc., etc., etc. Indeed, I do like to, you know, make the very, very long-form films. It's a bit like Japanese no-drama. You know, it's quite permissible to sit there for three hours and just watch the blossom fall off the tree. <laughs> You can understand that as a phenomenon. But I don't know whether you can actually build a cinema upon those sorts of propositions. Indeed, there was. I think it was even longer than five hours. It was probably seven hours. And um, we've been talking about the difference between the notions of documentary and feature film. And there are intimations, I think, even in the clip that you saw, about, considers about um, consideration of fruit symbolism. Um, games that are being played that Mr. Neville always gets it wrong, like we always seem to get things wrong. Exemplified when everybody's dressed in black, he comes dressed on white. When he comes on white, everybody's dressed in black. And all the notions of how we frame one another and we presuppose you know, uh, motives for one another are never really there. And it's a, a big examination. The year is 1694. The Hanoverians are just beginning, so William, uh, uh, William and Mary are on the English throne here. And there's a whole, you know, throwing out of Roman Catholicism with the Jesuitical uh, Stuarts and the beginnings again of the 19th century. So this seven-hour version had all this stuff in it, arguing, discussing, etc., etc., etc. But, I mean, I could imagine that maybe I might have ended up perhaps with you and two other people. Very true. <laughs> Um, I gather that we only saw the signing of a contract, but if, for those who are familiar with the film, will know that we have these series of conversations, sort of talking heads at the beginning. I gather that was a very extended sequence. It's yes. beautifully shot. Yes. Yeah. Sasha Vianney again, brilliant cinematographer. Yep. Um, listening to you talk, I, I sense that you have a certain amount of disdain for um, modern cinema, generally. Um, and I wondered what influences you and whether how much you do tune into other people's movies or and what influences you and how even the feeling about being involved in BAFTA and the whole being a, because you do to a certain extent have always sat outside the, the general realm of movie making. I'm not a very good cinema spectator 
I become very, very impatient very, very quickly. I don't know whether you're going to believe me, but the last time I actually went into a cinema, you know, came to the box office, bought a ticket, sat down in the dark for 120 minutes and stayed there to the bitter end would be David Lynch's Blue Velvet. That's a long, long time ago. I still believe that film's an extraordinary film. But ever afterwards, I've always, you know, had these impatiences. It's related, of course, to being a practicing filmmaker. I don't want to watch other people's films. I want to make my own film. But that's, you know, that's a very understandable phenomenon, isn't it? And often, you know, there's probably no film at all that goes by, however wretched it is, which doesn't have a few nanoseconds of something really extraordinary. Whether that's conscious or unconscious is another situation. But, you know, maybe I'm very unforgiving. You know, I'm looking for the perfect film. I'm looking for the film that would totally satisfy, you know, like those 1910, 1920 Belgian and French apologists for cinema being this great art. I obviously have to know probably more about cinema than anybody in this audience. I'm a practicing filmmaker. I have to know about actors. I have to know about technologies. I have to know about mise-en-scene, etc. And I do watch an awful lot of cinema, but again, I suspect, rather like a lot of you, I see it in a very fragmentary way on smartphones and DVDs and television, where I have control. Um, I don't know whether I've discussed this with you, but uh, as I said, I think maybe I said, maybe I didn't say it, but let me say it again. At the risk of repeating myself, I believe that cinema died on the 31st of September 1983 when the zapper or the remote control was introduced into the living rooms of the world. Bang! Cinema ceases to be passive and becomes active. You, the audience, are now, in some senses, in control of the filmmaking process. You've all got mobile phones, you've all got camera recorders, and you've all got laptops. So you're all filmmakers. Now, unlike in 1983, from a distance on the sofa, you could probably basically turn the cinema on and you could turn the cinema off on your television set. Now you have all the tools for remaking uh, Spielberg's Jurassic World. You can now remake that. We give you, Microsoft and his friends and relatives have given you the ways and means of doing that. So in a sense, you know, we have undercut some of the really important first-class characteristics of notions of what cinema was for our fathers and forefathers. Cinema, okay, sometimes still it's an event, but for most of us, cinema is not an event anymore. Very few of us, actually, proportionately, actually look at cinema en masse. Okay, maybe you're all good cinephiles, and maybe you do indeed come to BAFTA every third night of the week, and you see a film in company. Most people don't see films in company anymore, and they don't see them as events. They see them privately, either completely on their own, or with their nearest and dearest in the office, or in the sitting room. So these are big changes in the way we perceive and understand the notion of the cinema of our forefathers. I think filmmakers, and indeed audiences, have to acclimatize themselves to this and reorganize what we really regard as the cinema of the future and, as a consequence, make it so. And are you, firstly in terms of your own input, but then within the wider landscape of cinema, are you hopeful about the future? Well, if I, if I complain or if I state that cinema is dying and now dying very, very rapidly, I don't really think it's a cause for spilt milk or tears. 
because as always, if you trace back, you know, there's something about the human psyche, isn't there, that needs this grand spectacular phenomenon. And we've always had it. The ancient Greeks had extraordinary theaters. The Romans, people like Pompey, built the biggest theaters that the world has ever seen. And then the Roman Catholic Church took over and took the notion of spectacle into the church with all its full vocabulary. And I suppose then opera took over, and opera manifests that same satisfying excitement about audio-visual sensational mise-en-scene. And then I suppose, you know, opera continued probably till 1918, last years of the First World War. Uh, more or less 1918, our film historians say that's when uh, opera basically gave up and cinema took over. And now we've had 120 years of cinema. Maybe that's long enough. Now we're looking for the next huge super uh, audio-visual technology which will really empower and satisfy our contemporary imagination. And I think in a curious way we're all looking for it. I think that Eisenstein's first masterpiece, Strike, is really the beginning of cinema, the beginnings of cinema intelligence. Cinema was invented in 1895. Strike was made in uh, about 1925. So it's taken 30 years, a long generation, before people understood the new vocabulary of cinema in order to consolidate it, synthesize it, bring it all together, and make the first consolidated masterpiece. If I think cinema died in 1983, we're about 30 years or so right now. Somebody maybe in the audience is the next person to make the cinematic strike or the post-cinematic strike for the 21st century. Please come on up and let's see it. <laughs> Eisenstein in Guanajuato uh, is on general release on Friday. I would say that Almost all of Peter Greenway's features are available on DVD. If you get a chance to see them in cinema, do. But if you can't, and if there are any you haven't seen, I strongly recommend you watch them. If I have recommendations, I'd go for the book-ending films. The BFI's collection of Peter Greenway's early films, are a remarkable collection, and more recently, Night Watching, Galtius, and The Pelican Company are also quite stunning films. Thank you very much to BAFTA for organizing this event, but most of all, can you please join me in thanking Peter Greenaway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.